So if you'd just like to start by saying your name and your title and affiliation. Uh, so I'm Professor Julia Hippersley-Cox. I'm Professor of Clinical Epidemiology and General Practice um, in, in the Department of Primary Care Health Sciences um, at the University of Oxford. Lovely, thank you. And without telling me your entire life story, because I don't think we've got enough time for that, could you just give me a, a little outline of how you got from your first interest in medicine or medical science to, to where you are now? Okay, so, uh, so I trained as a doctor in, in, in Sheffield University um, and I did an academic training um, uh, alongside uh, training to be a general practitioner. So I work as an NHS GP um, in Oxfordshire um, and then I uh, loved doing research and, and basically have, have uh, spent over 20 years uh, doing research initially in the University of Nottingham and then in the last three years uh, moved to the University of Oxford where I'm now based. Okay, that's lovely. So um, if you had to define a, a sort of single big question that gets you out of bed in the morning, what, what would you say it was? Um, so how, how can we better inform um, uh, the decisions that doctors and patients need um, to make about their healthcare, to take, take account of their um, preferences, but also their different risks and benefits so that we can um, enable people to make informed decisions about their healthcare? Okay, so um, and what was your main area of research focus before COVID came along? Okay, so so I've um, been working for some years um, in electronic healthcare records. So I've developed a, a few very large um, electronic record databases. One called the Q Research Database, which takes general practitioner um, information or anonymized data about patients um, uh, over thirty million patient records. Uh, and it's linked to um, other healthcare data from uh, hospital admissions, and mortality, cancer registry. Um, and I was using that data to uh, answer questions about um, how common different diseases were, what the outcome is for patients once they've got those diseases, what treatments do they get, um, but particularly um, who's at risk from different conditions and different diseases and who might therefore benefit from specific intervention. So that was one theme. It's about predicting risk and modelling risk. And then the second broad theme was actually looking at safety of medicines and looking at when a new medicine is, is being introduced in, 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 um, in, in medical practice. Uh, we normally know that it's, set, it's effective because it's been tested in randomised controlled trials. Uh, but there's generally limited information about safety until medicines are actually used in large populations. Um, so actually looking at safety of medicines as well as their uh, uh, um, effectiveness has, has been a, a key interest. And both of those two things, both the risk modelling and also um, safety of, of medicines, um, have become um, major pieces of work that um, uh, themes in the, in the COVID pandemic that I've then uh, been working on in the last couple of years. So let's just look at a, a, a bit more closely about the whole question of um, health, these health databases. Um, I mean, I, I remember from, I've forgotten which year it was, but a decade or so ago, there was a lot of fuss in the media about a national scheme called care.data that was eventually dropped. Um, but nevertheless, there are these big databases. Can you, can you explain a little bit more about how they work? Yes, okay. So, so we set the Q Research database up sort of about 20 years ago, and it was the first time that uh, uh, individual patient-level data had been extracted from the um, EMIS system, which is the, the biggest and the most commonly used uh, computer system in general practice. Um, and all of the data that is extracted then and now is anonymised data, so we can't tell who individual patients are, so we don't have names and addresses and we can't work out who people are. But we can see a lot of information about what the 
illnesses they've got are, what thing, what blood tests they've had and what treatments that they're taking. Um, and this um, database was sort of set up uh, as part of a sort of philanthropic um, venture, really, with um, the, the company that makes uh, the computer systems, uh, because it's a, a unique and incredibly valuable source of uh, information about healthcare um, and the, the treatments that people get, the treatments people need, and, and then how they're used and, and uh, how safe they are. Um, and that was been in place for some years. And I think the care.data um, um, could see the, the people running that could see the value of these data bases for research, but could also see a wider value for health delivery of healthcare. Um, and um, they, they were, um, I, I think, did become quite controversial and subsequently uh, did as well because. Um, the, the, uh, one of the advantages that we've got in the university is that we're only using the data for research purposes um, and a university like the University of Nottingham and now the University of Oxford is, is a very trusted um, research environment basically for undertaking um, uh, research using these data sources um, and we're not able, because it's anonymised data, we're not able to use the data for wider purposes um, and some of the concerns I think related to the, to the um, use of wider purposes which weren't clear at the time exactly what the scope of those purposes were but by focusing really specifically on research questions and medical research uh, we've managed to con continue and expand the work we've been doing and we have got now quite a broad patient um, representation as well throughout all the stages of our um, um, endeavour so that we make sure that we take the public with us in terms of uh, making sure that the data is being used uh, appropriately to answer questions that are benefit to patients. So what, um, you may have mentioned a number of a figure earlier, and if you have, I've forgotten, but what, what sort of size are we talking, how many patients are we talking about? Yeah, so, so we've actually got over 35 million patient records on the database that we've got. Now those patient records go back to 1990, so um, some years ago, now tracking over 30 years, um, and it includes people who've, who've left um, the, their GP practice and people who sadly died, and also new patients that have come along. So as a snapshot, it covers about a quarter of the current population. Um, but as I said, I just stress that we don't know the names and addresses of those people. We just have uh, uh, anonymised records of those of those patients. But it, it is one of the largest, if, um, if not the largest, um, such data set um, in the UK. Um, and it, it's been widely used for research really over the last 20 years um, and, and is sort of internationally uh, well known as well. And, and you actually set up your own company, um, ClinRisk, is that right? Um, uh, so, so back in 2008, um, we, we developed some prediction software, the first, the first type of prediction software called the QRisk um, score, which basically takes information about a patient, um, their height, their weight, their cholesterol values, their family uh, history and their uh, medical conditions. And it, it builds a predictive model which uh, identifies uh, the risk of somebody getting heart a heart attack or stroke in the next 10 years. Um, and in order to implement that software, we needed to set up a company to produce the software to make sure there was insurance for it and it could be uh, used as a medical device and it, uh, and it could be embedded in, in the NHS systems such that it could be used at the point of care. And so the company, so Clinris Limited, was set up as a startup company really arising out of the University of, of Nottingham um, to implement the results so that you could translate the, the research findings into something which is tangible and beneficial for patients and that is used um, across the NHS and still used across the NHS now. Um, 
Yes, yeah, so so that I'm just kind of emphasizing that point. So so that that, that uh, software has actually been adopted, has it through, throughout the NHS? Yes. Yeah, so 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 the the, the steps where we de developed initially the the uh, risk uh, curious school. We published the paper in the British Medical Journal. Um, Oxford University, in fact, uh, researchers uh, validated that risk tool um, to, to check that it worked and it correctly identified the high-risk people. Uh, it was then uh, recommended by the NICE National Institute of Clinical Excellence for, uh, as part of their guideline, and it was also adopted by the Department of Health for the uh, NHS Health Checks programme, which is offered to everybody between the ages of 45 and 75 uh, on a sort of rolling basis. Um, and then that then led to the development of uh, other risk tools rather than just looking at heart disease we developed similar risk tools for uh, cardiovascular uh, for diabetes um, for uh, um, identifying people at high risk of uh, ha having osteoporotic fractures uh, high risk of having cancers with the idea that all of these tools could be used to actually identify people uh, in the risk category where we could target something to them so target an intervention like a medication or a prevention um, or uh, a referral you know, to, to, to make sure they haven't got a cancer, for example. And then these uh, risk uh, tools have been built into uh, clinical systems, uh, such as the EMIS system that I mentioned, um, so that the GPs who provide data to us um, actually get some benefit back in terms of utilities that exist in the clinical system. And therefore, and, uh, and through that, patients can actually get some direct benefit back from the, from the uh, utilities that we've developed as well. Um, so it's been a, a, a really interesting sort of cycle um, to, to do, um, to be able to take a research idea, really, and then change it into a sort of question and deliver some results in an academic setting, but then translate that into something which is tangible, which people can then use um, to help with clinical care on a day-to-day -day basis. So it's been a really satisfying thing to do as an academic, because sometimes you it, it, you can be quite far removed from actual sort of tangible outputs uh, because of the nature of the work that you do. So I feel really privileged to be in that position. So doctors can essentially um, call people up and say um, I think we ought to investigate you a little bit further rather than waiting for people to fall ill and and, and come and see them. Absolutely and so with cardiovascular disease you know we've got interventions now that we know work so we know that um, statins again uh, research done by others in the University of Oxford in fact looking at the effectiveness of statins uh, to reduce risk of cardiovascular disease uh, so, um, so we know that that intervention works and what the risk score does is actually helps quantify what that person's risk is so that we can then give that information to patients and then you know, if you were to then take a statin then this would be a, a net benefit to you uh, and helping reduce your reduce your risk. Um, so it's it's a, it's a, it's a very, very interesting sort of thing to have done. I think it's opened up a whole sort of raft of similar sort of um, endeavours by people. I think that it it opened up um, the sort of it was the first time anybody had actually done um, predictive risk modelling using GP um, electronic healthcare records and produced a tool which could then be used in clinical practice. So it's it served as a sort of uh, example really as to how you could do, how you could do um, such a thing in the future. Um, and are, are you personally interested in the geeky side of it, the coding and so on, or, or do you get other people to do that? Was it? Geeky side. Yeah. So, so, so before I went to university, actually, I had a year out. I was supposed to be going to, to um, another university to read physics, uh, but I changed my mind and I spent a year programming uh, computers um, uh, um, for uh, a large uh, company. 
um, and I and I absolutely loved writing uh, computer code and um, at that at that point. Um, but I then went into medicine, um, uh, and then I've uh, uh, come. I'm I, I still working in, in medicine, but actually found that the computer skills that I've got and the mathematical skills uh, could be combined with the medical skills that I've got, uh, all wrapped up in sort of epidemiology, really, and the way of being able to, um, to, to implement things. So so I'm one, one of those doctors, Doctors Who Code is a little group of, of people who, um, uh, informal group of people, really, who, who, uh, who like doing the geeky side of of things um, and there's quite there's quite a few of us about actually um, who, who like to be able to uh, take things and then uh, put them into software and, and, and make them useful. So let's uh, finally get round to, to COVID itself. Can you remember where you were or how you came to hear that there was something going on in China and that it, it might actually become quite serious? Um, so I can remember back to um, hearing about the the the, 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 the um, emergence of the, of the of the virus. So back in two thousand and five, actually, um, we we set up a, a, a scheme called the Q surveillance um, infectious diseases surveillance system, and that had arisen because of, of concerns about bird flu. Um, and at the time, there was a, there was a real real concern that there was going to be a pandemic to the bird flu. And that the government would need very rapid access to information um, at the point um, that to, to be able to alert to a pandemic and then to be able to manage it. And so um, going right back then, we, we sort of set up a, a surveillance system covering an even bigger group of patients, actually, for, for nearly 40 million patients and collecting information basically to alert to things like flu outbreaks, infectious diseases outbreaks. Um, and that has run um, and ran for many years, basically, as a sort of a, a, a surveillance system and have been part of like uh, endeavours to look at pandemic planning and things like that in the past. So, so I, I was, my awareness of pandemics was, was already, if you like, quite heightened. And so when I heard about Wuhan virus and heard about the SARS, um, you know, I, I was immediately really quite concerned about that because by the time that you think about trying to contain it, it's probably already already spread um, so I can remember that quite quite clearly and I can remember um, being uh, being asked by the government really quite early on to look at the surveillance systems that we've got in place and to see what we could potentially do to help um, enhance those um, and then it, the, 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 my direct involvement happened um, I think it was about in a, uh, early May 2020 um, so so Chris Whitty um, Chief Medical Officer had identified um, a, a list of patients who we thought might be at high risk of getting severe outcomes from COVID, who might need to have special interventions. And the way that that was done was basically to look at what we knew about flu um, and the people who were susceptible to getting flu each year. And again, because of the work I've been doing on surveillance over many years, we've been tracking flu outbreaks and flu virus uh, vaccine uptake and things like that. Um, and they produced this list and it was the best we could do in, in the complete desert of information, a complete lack of data at that particular time. But it became very apparent, particularly to you know, uh, Chris uh, Whitty, but also um, Jenny Harris, now Dame Jenny Harris, that the people who were coming through the doors on the intensive care units were not necessarily the people that were on these uh, high risk category lists and they didn't look the same. Um, so there was a different ethnic mix and some of the conditions that we thought were high risk didn't seem to be, and then other, other things which we didn't think were high risk did seem to be. And there was obviously a, a lot of public concern at the time. And so we were asked to sort of start to look at 
building on the uh, work that we that they, they knew that we were able to do, which is basically uh, develop prediction models for an outcome um, to, to then see whether we could actually make that outcome severe COVID um, a poor outcome, but so basically somebody being admitted to hospital, admitted to intensive care or, or sadly dying from COVID. And so um, we then started off on some of the quickest research that we've ever done, which was only really possible because we've done this quite a lot of times before for other conditions over the previous 10 years. Um, and so I was able to assemble uh, new data as it was coming through. So the information, uh, I think we were one of the first recipients of the um, the data set from the, the Public Health England, as it was, for the infectious diseases, um, SARS data file as it was coming through. We were able to combine that with the data we already had um, on hospital admissions. Um, we were able to get new and faster data on hospital admissions that was just becoming available. Uh, and because we already had an eco-structure and an infrastructure, we were able to basically tag these extra things on and we were able to look at the, the expertise we'd already got in terms of modelling to be able to, to um, run um, and develop really very quickly some, some new predictive models to look at um, who's at high risk of getting severe outcomes from COVID. We did a really extensive um, patient engagement um, at that point. So there were lots of, you know, quite, quite understandably and predictably, really, there were lots of patient groups who were very concerned about you know, their particular condition. People, for example, who were not actually recognised on the original shielded patient list, so people with severe kidney transplant, um, severe renal failure who had kidney transplant, for example, people with severe learning disabilities. And so we were able to sort of work with those um, through the Department of Health, but work with a with large group of, of um, charity, charitable organisations and patient groups, professional groups really, to assimilate um, what the long list of, of conditions might be that we should look at um, and we were able to then cycle through and look at those um, and develop the, the um, research underpinning research which we then published in the British Medical Journal um, and we developed a model which we were then able to test and validate not just on um, a sort of the, the data set that we had but we were also able to work with colleagues up in Scotland um, and in Wales, Northern Ireland um, and in, in the uh, Office of National Statistics. Um, so we, we developed the model and then we got it to be tested to make sure that it worked um, in those different settings, so up in Scotland and up in Wales, um, and also uh, across the whole of the national database in the Office of National Statistics. Um, so this was coming, I suppose, um, with, with the intention that we would uh, be able to identify quickly people who needed interventions so that we could target those most at risk to get treatments that, that they needed and to get them first. And so one of the, 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 the prime uh, use cases, so this time last year, or just, a, I think it was in February last year, uh, we took the algorithm that we developed and we applied it, um, I say we, we as a sort of a corporate we, if you like. So um, Oxford um, University Innovations um, did all the medical device regulation um, certification, Oxford Computing Consulting that works very closely with the university, uh, developed some sort of industrial scale software, which was then sent to um, NHS Digital. So that's the sort of national organisation that um, organises um, and hosts a lot of nation, the nation's healthcare data. Um, and then they then uh, applied the algorithm to the national database to sort of stratify and basically put into risk categories uh, everybody on the database and what that did is that added overnight well I say overnight 
that the, the uh, it took a month or two to, to get the software working. But once it was then run, we were able um, to, NHS Digital were able to write to one and a half million um, patients nationally to identify the, the fact that they were at higher risk of severe COVID outcomes um, and that they hadn't already been put onto the original list. Um, and then for those patients, they were given like a priority letter and then 800,000 of those patients were able to come and get a vaccine earlier in the programme than they would have done just by virtue of their age or the, the, current, the current arrangements that are in place. So that was a very tangible thing that we were able to, um, to do. And, and those patients then came forward. And I think there was a broad understanding at the time. I think most people, just looking back, I think um, I think society sort of feels that you know, the most vulnerable people that we have should be at the top of the queue for getting interventions. And people were pleased to see, you know, their, their grannies coming forward or people with serious health conditions sort of being prioritised. And I think one of the reasons that we could do that from the ethical perspective um, was because we knew that everybody would get a vaccine eventually. And what we were doing is just actually prioritising people according to the level of need and doing it in a way that didn't make a decision, if you like. So it didn't actually make people have a vaccine. It just basically identified the people who were at risk so that it could be prioritised um, first. And that probably just, just reminds me to mention the fact that the, um, the, the enormous team effort this, this was really because uh, the, the, there were so many dimensions. And one of the dimensions was actually the ethics and the moral uh, brought us into contact with the Moral and Ethics Advisory Committee, which I, I was not aware of before, but which is a, a government-led organisation, which is was currently chaired, uh, was chaired at the time by Jonathan Montgomery, also from Oxford, um, which basically was able to look at the, the different approaches that we could have taken to stratification, um, because there needs to be there needed to be some sort of a, a, a approach about how do you uh, get the vaccines to everybody. In, in the most appropriate way and really to help us sort of think through what the issues were and to make sure that it's compliant um, with what you know, what the general public would ac be, find acceptable but also would be uh, compliant with the, the legislation and data protection act and things like that as well so um, there was a lot of team working on that and there was also a lot of team working to actually ensure that the um, information that was made available um, to patients was understandable as well and that um that people could uh, and uh, and to healthcare professionals so so that that was the the sort of the the, the main output initially from that initial piece of work and then the second output was that um we we uh, developed um uh, 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 so i just got slightly distracted by emails flying through so i'm just going to um so, so i'm just covering those up um, so the, the second aspect was that we um, developed a clinical calculator, which you can find um, at www.qcovid.org. So the risk assessment tool was called QCOVID, um, and that's partly uh, because the database which we've um, developed is called the Q Research Database, and we've, we've put generally a Q at the beginning of things to as a bit of a brand. Um, but NHS Digital also uh, produced a risk assessment tool, which allows um, an individual or a clinician, a doctor or a patient indeed, to be able to put information in about their characteristics so their age, their sex, their ethnic group and information about them. And then it would calculate a, a risk for them and it would compare that risk uh, to other, other risks, for example, like the, the risk of somebody of the same age and sex as them who didn't have maybe some of the healthcare conditions. And that that's part of the, going back to what I was saying at the beginning, the, the, the sort of the 
trying to provide to, to people better information about what the risks are that we're trying to avoid um, and therefore what the benefits are by actually having uh, the, the treatments that uh, are needed and what, why they might have been prioritised. So that um, was the second thing that was produced. So that at the end of um, 2015, uh, 2015, 2021, um, we were asked to update the risk model that we'd done because we had now got a vaccinated population. Um, so uh, the, the, one of the challenges has been the fact that the um, it's not a static thing. So uh, unlike cardiovascular risk, which is changing slowly over you know over a decade, this is a situation which was changing month by month really, and that we would we would go from an unvaccinated population to a vaccinated population or largely vaccinated population, and that the chief medical officer wanted us to find out. What, uh, who was still vulnerable despite having a vaccination. So we had to rerun models again, at this time linking in the vaccine data so that we could look at people who were still vulnerable at that point, uh, despite having been vaccinated. Um, and then that was called QCOVID-3. Um, so, so QCOVID-2 was actually um, the model that we did because we'd had a new wave. Um, I think it was the alpha wave, looking back, the, the one last year. And then QCOVID-3 was actually the... Um, the model that we did taking account of the vaccinated population. And we're just now being asked to look at QCOVID-4, which is to take account of the Omicron wave. And so, again, it, it keep, really keeps you on your toes, I think. And I think one of the, the real interests for me about this is not just you know, producing a tool that can be used, but actually when you've got a complex system, so you've got new treatments becoming available, you've got a virus that doesn't seem to obey any rules, you know, it's just mutating without asking, um, and we need to keep the models up to date. So what's the best way to keep the models up to date? How do we do that? And so we're working you know, quite broadly with other experts in the field to look at dynamic updates of models and how, how best to, to keep uh, these models up to date. And, um, and then there's more recently, even still, so in, in this uh, bringing us up to date to 2022, um, some of the work that we've been uh, doing has been uh, trying to prioritise people for new um, therapeutics apart from vaccines that have become available. So drugs uh, called monoclonal antibodies or MABs, as they're sometimes called. Um, these are particularly useful for patients who can't make their own antibodies or who can't don't get a response to vaccines, might be very sick for other reasons. And so the work that we've been doing has been helping sort of prioritise um, patients for those particular treatments. Um, Great, thank you. Yes, I can certainly keep, I can certainly oh, keep talking. And, um, <laughs> so I was just going to ask you, um, yeah, going sort of right back to the beginning, uh, the first paper that you did, um, what were the main groups that you uncovered that hadn't been picked up in the initial shielding lists? Yeah, so, so the main, so people who've got um, significant neurological problems, so people with motor neurone disease, Huntington's career, uh, multiple sclerosis, that was one category of people. Um, uh, people with Down syndrome, again, that was a, that was a, a brand new finding um, that they seem to have particularly high risks um, and that finding has since been replicated in other in other data sets. And um, in fact, um, th 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 that meant that people with Down syndrome were, you know, were prioritised for interventions. And then, as I mentioned, the, the uh, people with uh, severe kidney disease and who had uh, transplants 
um, they were they were included. But but the actual model is it, it isn't so much it's a group of patients. It's about a, a cumulative thing. So it takes account of somebody's age and ethnicity and their medical conditions and indeed things like their level of obesity. So some of the research we did um, was used um, to, to basically inform the, some of the obesity planning, which is because, you know, as your body mass index goes up, as you become more obese, then your risk of having serious outcomes also goes up. So, and that is one of the few modifiable risk factors, actually, where people can, can make, make a difference themselves through what they're, what they're, uh, they're doing. Um, the other bit of work probably to mention is um, coming back to the theme of, of vaccine safety. So once, um, again, this has been a theme sort of through my work over the years, which is, once you've identified a group of patients who might need uh, an intervention, you then also need to make sure that that intervention is going to the right people, but that intervention is safe for those people. So over the years, uh, when we started with cardiovascular disease and we identified people at high risk cardiovascular heart disease, we might then have had a statin prescription. Our next theme of research was actually to go and look at the risks and benefits of statins to make sure there weren't any unexpected side effects. And so, what we've done um, over the over the Christmas, really, in the run up to Christmas um, this year and in the middle of last year, um, is to look at the safety of the COVID um, vaccines. So we were very, again, very privileged to, to get access to the national data sets for COVID vaccination, which meant that we could look at um, you know, 46 um, million people, um, all anonymized data, but we could compare who's had the COVID, the Oxford vaccine, for example, who's had the um, Pfizer one, who's had the Moderna one. And we were able to look at the side effects that were being um, uncovered at the time and that there were, there were concerns. We were able to do that quite quickly. So uh, looking back to Easter last year, you know, there were some concerns around uh, some of the side effects of thrombosis risk associated with the Oxford vaccine. So we were uh, um, had some funding from uh, a priority um, uh, government um, funding source to, to look at that quickly um, and we were able to we were able to confirm um, that there was a signal to do with the Oxford vaccine with for thrombosis risk however we were able to put that in context with the risk of the same outcome if you were to get infected um, with COVID um, and in fact actually although there was an increased risk with the, with the vaccine it was nowhere near as big as the increased risk associated with the virus and so therefore, um, whilst, you know, you know it'd be ideal if there were not any sort of adverse events from any, any, any medicines, we, we know in the real world that there are, but the important thing is to be able to quantify that. So it was still able to be you know, a positive message, which is that it's, it's better to be vaccinated than it is to be to actually contract the, the virus. Um, we were then able to follow that work up um, as uh, concerns about um, myocarditis, which is an inflammation of the heart, sort of started to emerge about some of the other vaccines. And again, we were able to quantify um, those risks and uh, and identify the people most at risk within within some of those groups as well. And published some papers uh, in Nature Medicine just around, around Christmas time, which have been, I think, because the UK used three vaccines. And it used them quickly and its its vaccine program was very successful in terms of getting coverage. It also left us, I think, with a responsibility to, to make sure that we use that data wisely and informatively so that we could tell other people uh, you know, who might be in, in a program in their own countries that were less advanced 
sort of what you know what the direct comparisons are between those different risks and so that's been a important stream of work that we've, we've we're just finishing now um, and the message i'm just just to confirm that the message is that the risk is actually extremely small of, of the vaccines um it, it's not not nothing but as you say compared with actually catching the the, the virus it's it's much more that, that's right. So, 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 for example, we were able to, to present information. It, it might be that for every million patients that have been vaccinated, then there might be one or two extra people who end up uh, with, with, with one of these side effects that might not have otherwise occurred. But had they got the virus, then there might be 10 more or 20 more, etc. So it's that. And we've worked closely with the Edinburgh um, Institute, uh, the Usher Institute in, in the University of Edinburgh, to basically produce nice graphical um, images, basically, which, which allow you to contextualise that information and present it to people um, it, 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 in a, a readily accessible format so that anybody basically can, can understand it. And, um, and we've certainly found that that has been a, a, a valuable uh, a way of being able to communicate science in in the sort of uh, pictorial form um in in the, in the simple and easy to use sort of graphics really which can communicate um complex so it's, it is complex doing these analyses but the results at the end of the day are quite simple you know that you can summarize in a picture um uh, quite often um and but there are maybe some subgroups where you know and this country has changed its policy on on the uh, because of uh, the um, effects of some of the vaccines in particular age groups, you know, for example, the Oxford vaccine is now not used in younger people because of because of the potential risks that there are. But there are other vaccines which can which can be used um, um, instead. Um, so I think it comes back to really the whole driving force for me that my, all my research really is around trying to better quantify the risks and benefits of 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 um that people face because of the illnesses they might get but also then the decisions that they need to make about what treatments or what what to do next um because there's always a trade-off really um that, that you need to do and i think to get consent from people um as a doctor so you know you need you need to be able to provide people with reliable information so they can make a decision um about what they want to what they want to do so these the the, the uh ability to use these huge databases has clearly both speeded up and made much more accurate the kind of risks, risk stratification and also the uh, spotting of, of side effects. How, how was that done previously? So it's, it's been um, done, I think, so I think with the drug safety surveillance, as we might call it, it it's been um, done at uh, a sort of smaller scale uh, and not necessarily in a systematic way and so um, there's a thing for, called the yellow card system which is run by the medicines health regulatory agency mhra and uh, that's encouraged uh, for as long as i've been qualified which is which is some years now but it's encouraged w w with a new drug if you think that somebody might have had a side effect from a, from a drug you fill out a card and you send it in and and that has certainly has got a value but what it doesn't tell you um, is it doesn't tell you how many people have had the drugs and not had those side effects you don't have a sort of denominator so it's good for generating a sort of concern and that's partly how some of the concerns around that uh, about the thrombosis risk that we talked about were, were raised but it's not so good for actually quantifying it because you don't know what the denominator is and you can't work it out in the way it, 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 it in the way that we've just described 
So I think one of the things with the future, which I think is really important, that we, we take the lessons that we've learned from the pandemic and we take some of the new infrastructures that we've built and the new data linkages that we've been able to do and that we, we harness that because um, some, the, some of the approaches that we've used statistically, for example, can be programmed into computers and can uh, run automatically in the background and basically just looking for uh, unexpected um, uh, side effects, for example. Um, and you could have a, a sort of infectious, uh, a drug safety surveillance system, which uh, could automatically in a scalable way across millions of people, when we have new medicines that are being rolled out, actually look to establish that they're safe and do that in a reliable way that might be you know, uh, uh, quite cost effective for the government as well um, to think about. And also independent from both the companies that make the drugs, who are, who, who are obviously very interested in what the side effect profile might be, uh, rightly so, and, and also the people who regulate the drugs who um, you know, during COVID have had to be um, making decisions more quickly maybe than, than they hitherto been needed to do. And then this basically triangulates the, and supports the providers supporting evidence that they need in order to be able to, to look at, because you can't look at the, you know, when you're in the middle of a pandemic and you're trying to scale a vaccine that you know works, you, you have to sort of do these things in real time. It, there's no point in doing a study like two years later and then find uncovering something. You have to have a system in place that allows you to do this as you go along. And I think um, one of the one of the other um, very interesting things, you, you mentioned about care data at the beginning of our, our discussion. I think there were a lot of concerns about uh, from patients around about the use of data when they didn't know what it was going to be used for. But in the context of uh, when we were risk stratifying patients, um, some of the feedback that we got from patients is that they were really keen to make sure that their doctor knew that they had conditions or that they had information that was up to date. They really wanted to know that their data was being used, not just for the general good, but actually to make sure that, that the information about their condition was being factored into the risk assessment. And if they were at risk of, of needing to have a priority for a particular treatment, then, then that could be uh, available. So I think there's been a, a sea change in how people have understood data um, not just around the risk prediction thing, I suppose it's, you know, there's a massive increase in health literacy across the population. I mean, we've now got a population that, that knows about the names of variants of viruses and the subvariants of viruses and knows the names of different vaccines and has some sort of, in a way that would have been unthinkable, you know, even two years ago um, to have this. And I think that there's, there's, there's a, a big step change in how, People want to know about the information. They want to be able to assess their risks. I think there's been a big change as well about how we think about other people around us as well and, and, and the need to be considerate about the fact that you might everybody is in a chain that might lead to somebody who is a vulnerable person, which I think is something that Chris Whitty said um, early on. And I think you know, some of the, what I hope is some of the work that we've done around being able to still assess people's vulnerability and risk to COVID might help uh, other people be considered of that particularly vulnerable person in the sense that they know that that, that, that person is vulnerable and they, could, they might be able to make special you know, concessions and arrangements and things like that to help protect that person. And that as a society, we can become more considerate about the people around us and the fact that our actions might actually have consequences for other people 
um, and that we could pretend, potentially protect them uh, by by you know the, some of the measures that we we, we um, now come to know that are, are, are useful and necessary in these circumstances. So, um, how was the uh, uh, the COVID the Q COVID work funded initially? So, so the, it was funded by um, the National Institute for Healthcare um, Research, so NIHR. Um, so, uh, so we had a uh, it, 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 we had to get going with the work as soon as we asked to do it. But so it took a little while for the funding actually to come through. But we knew that it would come through um, after after some months, and um, and then that's um, being funded. Um, by the by the NIHR um, and, and without that um, we wouldn't be able to, to to get going but what was what did help in the very early stages is that there was a call from um, the medical sciences division at the University of Oxford um, in the in the right at the beginning of the pandemic for us uh, because there, were, there was a donor fund that had been set up and um, we got together very quickly um, within Oxford I think everybody who 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 does special things if you like does work with data or does data linkages etc we will make connections really quickly and so we we were lucky to get um, a couple of the early awards that the medical sciences division offered us and one of those awards was to uh, um, it, it sounds a small thing but actually it enabled us to actually pay for uh, the, the access fees for some of the data sets that we needed because you know, there's always costs associated with the ministry data sets so that meant that we could we could actually get that data immediately. So there was no delay in us getting that data set. Um, if we'd had to wait for the main grant to come through, but you know, the, the, the first wave would have come and gone before we got there. And then the second one, again, which we're very grateful to the Medical Sciences Division for, was that it enabled us to buy some serious quantities of, of computer software and, um, and hardware particularly, so some big servers that we've been able to um, set up for researchers. And so we've got teams of researchers now that are logging in um, to all the data that we, we have is safely stored in an in, in um, environment where you, you go to the data, you don't download data. So nobody downloads data into a laptop, nobody emails data, uh, only a few people can access it. But what the funding did was basically enables, enabled us to buy um, some some um, high power computing um, facilities that um, means that we could um, get more researchers working on the data and get results out more quickly. And so again, I think that that was incredibly lucky being in a place like Oxford um, that, that enabled us to do that um, really quickly. And I think again, we we were I felt really fortunate to be I'd only been in Oxford a year um, by the time when the pandemic started. Um, but very quick, and I hadn't met a lot of colleagues, but then very quickly we were uh, working with uh, consultants up in, in intensive care, um, Professor um, Sir Peter Horby, for example, who, who is the chair of the Nerve Tag Group for SAGE. Um, and really any expertise that you needed um, is available, uh, not, not just in Oxford, but Oxford has a very high concentration of, of people with very specific expertise um, from policy makers uh, like um, Professor uh, Anthony Harnden, who's the, uh, from the Joint Committee on Vaccinations, uh, and the people like Professor Screeton, who develops the monoclonal antibodies and uh, things like that, which we're now looking at evaluating. So um, it's, it's, it's been a really uh, a fruitful place to be uh, when you need to get research done really quickly. It's been an excellent um, environment. I had a follow-up question about the funding because you, you mentioned a, a little while ago that you'd like to uh, continue this approach for other kinds of, of condition. 
um, how confident are you that um, in the light of the success with QCOVID that that funding will be forthcoming? I think it will. I think it will. Um, so, uh, so one of the things that's that's happened is that NHS Digital. Uh, it was the first time that they'd actually ever done a sort of uh, what they call a precision health intervention at scale. So uh, applying a risk, risk stratification system to a national data set to identify individuals who they could then send letters to. Um, you know, um, for me, it's a little bit old hat in the sense I've been doing this sort of thing, you know, for other diseases and COVID was, you know, challenging, but, but similar not too different disease in some ways to the principle, but for them it's the first time, and so that they've now started thinking about um, you know, the whole cohorting approach. And so, one of the things that's happened, I think, um, indirectly because of the pandemic, um, is that we we perhaps uh, under a lot of pressure in the NHS. Uh, for things like early diagnosis of cancer for cancer screening so a lot of the screening processes um, just ended up being shelved um, so I think we stopped doing breast screening altogether for some a period of time in the pandemic and then obviously you need to start doing those things again and it comes back you can't do everybody immediately you have to have some some mechanism of being able to actually identify people who might be sitting on a waiting list who who are at higher risk than somebody else on the waiting list and need their diagnosis more quickly and so um, I know that there are sort of initiatives looking now at whether we can develop the cancer risk stratification into the national um, system and, and obviously research always has to come first so that's always first and centre about developing the tools making sure the tools work making sure that they're valid and and then that they can be engineered so I think that 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 um, is likely to be you know, funding bodies such as CI Cancer Research UK, um, MRC, I think EPSRC, I think are looking at into those areas. And I, I certainly went to a, a samplet. We were successfully awarded a, an award from the, the Cancer Research UK samplet for Christmas to look at um, dynamic assessment of cancer risk in, in primary care. Um, so that is that that's an uh, interesting one. I didn't um, quite understand what you what, 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 what pit, you said so, 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 so sand pit is as, as a sand way you it's called a sand pit it's um sorry it's like a, a, a when you go away for three days with people you've never met before but who, all of whom have got a central interest around a particular thing who might have a particular expertise to offer so so the so CRUK had a, a three-day event just before Christmas where they got together people who wanted to basically make a step change in the early diagnosis of cancer and so they included Epidemiologists like myself, GP, uh, I'm GP as well, um, uh, but people who work in secondary care, hospital doctors, but also engineers and mathematicians and behavioural therapists, psychologists, and I think there were some nursing colleagues, etc. And then they put you in a room together and basically get, give you a task, and then you have to come up with proposals uh, of something which could which could be a, a, a sort of step change uh, in, in early diagnosis. Um, uh, uh, of cancer so that uh, i must say that that thing hasn't, hasn't yet been announced um so that will be announced sometime in the in the in the in the next couple of months the, the outcomes from that award um so uh so that's in the in the, the risk stratification for early diagnosis of cancer um and um potentially it could it's an approach that could be used um for you know um, looking at eye screening for people who are who've got diabetes who need to have more tailored eye screening schedules so some people might need to become every year some people every two years some people might need to come every six months um 
for it could be applied to um, like breast cancer screening. So there might be within the, the crude sort of scheme that we have at the minute, which basically says you know, people between two ages come every so often, or they, they might come every three years, they might come every year. You could tailor screening intervals to target people who are um, who've got a family history to come at different frequencies and things. Some of this is already done, but not in a, in a way that is systematic. Um, and then from the drug safety side, I think that that's more challenging. I think there's a bigger emphasis on developing new medicines. Um, and there's less emphasis, I think, on actually checking that they're safe. However, if you don't have a system that looks at safety, then you, you could end up with some sort of health scare, which then means that people don't want to use the medicines that, that are happening. So you have to have it uh, integrated and, and, and uh, there has to be, I think, a, in order to get public confidence, professional confidence, it has to be more of a systematic approach to, to drug safety. Um, and uh, so, so, so I think that, that there's, um, you know, there's, as ever, there's a need to, to, to ensure that the people who fund things know that these are ongoing needs. We need to build capacity um, as well in the system uh, to ensure that the next generation research is coming through. As some of who have had their research sort of uh, completely changed by the pandemic, they weren't able to do the project they started off doing because you know, the pandemic took over. And other people who, you know, who, whose research has really exploded in a wonderful way because you know, they've been right at the moment, you know, in, in that um, in the time where they're asking and answering questions that are of international you know, significance uh, and they're doing that you know, at pace and at scale. Um, so I think I think it's important also just to recognise that a lot of the research that I think has been done in Oxford, but probably elsewhere is not. Uh, it, it, it has been done quickly and effectively in the pandemic, but it's building on a track record of possibly, you know, many years or, or decades even of of um, of advances and and investment. And so I think there is an important moment now for for, for the government to be strategic in how it thinks about funding, um, you know, the onward, um, not just the pandemic sciences side of things, but. The, the other things I mentioned as well about indirect effect of the pandemic and how the NHS can help recover itself. So you mentioned the high quality of research in Oxford. I mean, one consequence of that that I feel that I've perceived is that in, in normal times, it, it's actually quite competitive. Um, but you've talked a lot about collaboration between, uh, you know, across disciplines and, and uh, with, among people with different mm. interests. Did, have you found that distinctively different from your previous experience of, of working in academic research? Well, I, th I think it's it's been incredible, really, because I, I think, uh, you know, when there's a serious threat to health, which you know, it, it, it's got... Um, a lot of unknown things where we need to answer questions you know in, in a way you know obviously we'd all wish we hadn't had a pandemic but it, it sets you as sort of a task and set of questions which you can all unite around and you you very rapidly sort of think right okay I need somebody who's got these expertise or that expertise and I've just found people fantastically collaborative so so for example when I um wanting to look at um looking at safety of, of vaccines in pregnancy for example and you and you you suddenly look around Oxford and you realize you have um uh, 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 people here who who are the world experts 
at looking at um, pregnancy and and um, maternal inquiries and in, 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 in for death, for example, or uh, we've got world experts in vaccination, etc. And that you ask people, you know, would you be interested in looking at this as a question? Can we can we better quantify risks of vaccination in pregnancy, not just COVID vaccines, but and you just find that everybody says yes. And can you can you know when can we meet? And and the ideas just sort of keep flowing through, and you just suddenly realise that you've gone from a small project to a, a really large program of work. And um, but it's, it's been fantastic from that from that perspective. I think there is a competitive, collaborative thing as well. And so I think you know the fact that people want to. Um, it's good to have a bit of a, um, a need to basically get ahead with your research and get it out there so that you, you can actually communicate your findings quickly. And you have to, sometimes you do have to be first to do to do that rather than be the person who's confirmed it for the 15th time because that becomes less interesting. And so I think um, you know, the, the, the overwhelming need from the public and policymakers to get answers out quickly um, has sort of tapped into, I think, the competitive sort of spirit that I think is probably in all of the Oxford academics uh, really but then they've done it in a collaborative uh, in a collaborative way and you sometimes find that you know you're competing with people and collaborating with them at the same time and that's been fine as well so we've been putting in for grants with people um, and because of hosting a national data set then we have to be fair and if other people want to put in a bid as well and compete with us um, with a bid that we're putting in we support that as well. So, so again, I think it's, I think it just opens up your eyes to different ways of working, um, and people bring different um, things to the table, and uh, they have different lens and way of answering, uh, framing questions and answering questions. So, for example, uh, right now uh, we're doing some work, urgent work, looking at the safety of these new COVID therapeutics that the monoclonal antibodies that I mentioned. And there were three groups that have all been commissioned to do exactly that same question. So we were all just given a question just before Christmas. Um, there's a group up in Scotland. Uh, there's another group um, in Oxford as well, um, led by Dr. Ben Goldacre and, and ourselves. And we were all given ex the same exam question, if you like. And then we all produced a, some protocols and then we're all meeting on a weekly basis um, currently to see uh, what answers we're coming up with. We've got slightly different data sets. We've got slightly different interests we've got slightly different expertise and so there's some work that we're confirming because we're both doing it and finding the same answers and then there's other things that we're doing which are complementary and then that will all come out um be concluded i hope <laughs> in april in a sort of report that comes from all of us so there's this sort of competitive collaborative um thing where everybody basically benefits i think from 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 that sort of working relationship and is that something you'd like to see continue in the future? And how, how likely do you think that is that um, with once the pressure of this unique um, uh, emergency is, is lifted? Will oh, I keep thinking that the pressure has gone and that then, you know, we get the Omicron thing coming along. And it doesn't it, it, from, from that point of view, the questions are still really from the policymakers' point of view, I think the questions are still very urgent. Um, I think I hope it continues. I mean, it's a huge amount of fun. I mean, doing research is a huge amount of fun. It's just a really interesting thing to do. I mean, I've always enjoyed learning about new things and asking questions, um, and then being able to ask answer the questions that you ask and that interest to you, but also interested in the views to other people as well. And I think 
being in an environment like Oxford, you know, the, 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 I sometimes joke about the, the R factor for research questions in Oxford. It's like one research question generates two more, which generates two more. And then you get a group of people together and then suddenly you've got this enormous uh, list of questions that you, that you need to sort of think about, you know, what's the priorities and how can we best answer those? I think the constraints are going to be time and and then also funding is it does come back to funding as well and then making sure that um what whilst um one of the nice things that happened about the funding stream um in in the um in the, in the pandemic um one of the things i mentioned was the fact that oxford was so quick off the mark at giving people um funding that unlocked doors basically quickly and that put us in a competitive position to be able to leverage some of the big, bigger grants that we then went on to we and other people then went on to to win um but it's just making sure that that is 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 um matched but by the sort of the, the metrics you know that, that that people need to sort of keep for their careers to be, to be moving on is, is um you know, there's quite a lot of traditional metrics you know like how many papers have you published and how much money have you brought in and and how many students do you supervise and how many committees do you sort of sit on um and those are sort of you know all very fine good bona fide metrics of, of academic progress but maybe we need to think more about you know how many data sets have you shared how many patients lives have you potentially changed through the use of your research actually what impacts have you created and i think these are things which are just starting to, you know, how many questions asked by patients have you actually been able to address um, in a meaningful way? How many lives have you changed? I think these are sorts of things that in the last few years have become more to the fore about the impact and measuring impact. And, um, and then making sure that there's that translational mechanism in place so that you can go from um, uh, from research question I was saying earlier on, research question to a tool or something which can be used to be able to actually build that tool and then to put it into software and to put it into systems. So I think, you know, again, being in Oxford and having like Oxford University Innovations um, is really helpful from that from that end. Um, so I, ho I hope that it all, it all continues. And I hope that it's it sort of, um, that, that we don't revert back to some of the... Um, sort of the old ways really where you know it would take over a year to you know, put a grant in and it would take over a year to find out if you'd won that grant or not um because certainly in the, in the pandemic situation a year is just far far too long um so, so i hope that some of those processes can be sp speeded up so that we can get you know more knowledge new knowledge out there more quickly so that that can be more beneficial to patients mm. So I've just got a couple of questions about your your kind of personal experience of the pandemic. Um, how did you feel personally threatened by the infection that that you might get it, and was was that something you were fearful about, or or that people close to you might? Uh, so I think like like everybody really, you know, it's sort of the beginning, the unknown, um, the unknown nature of the infection, about how serious it was. So I took, you know, I took the I, the um, government guidance extremely seriously and made sure my family did as well. So when we were all supposed to be sitting in our houses and not going out more than once a day, then that is exactly what we did. And when we were supposed to be wearing masks, and we were doing exactly exactly that. And so, uh, you know, I think that I think that's responsible. Um, um, Behaviour. Um, I, I think um, I, you know, I, I did manage to get COVID over Christmas, having studiously avoided it for for two years. Um, Last Christmas, twenty one. Christmas twenty one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Christmas twenty one, the one that's just happened. Um, yeah. 
And uh, I think luckily for me, you know, I was already vaccinated and it was it was a mild um, it was a mild illness. But I think um, so, so. So I think, you know, like everybody really sort of it, 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 there was the concerns about sort of coming into contact with vulnerable people and that you don't want to be the person who might spread an infection to somebody whose immune system might not be strong enough to be able to cope with it as well. Um, so, so I think you know, um, just like everybody, really, in, in the in the face of the unknown, um, and as you get older as well, your your risks naturally um, increase. Um, but you know, I think the the good news is is that we've now got high levels of immunity in the population. Um, I think there have been difficult calls that the government have need to make, and I think largely, you know, you know, by hook or by crook, we've managed to get where we are reasonably, you know, well. I mean, I think that um, I'm sure that there will be lessons learned from the pandemic as uh, as we look back, um, as you would expect, really. I mean, this is the completely unprecedented times um, that we've had. And how did the, the pandemic change the way you, you had to work? I mean, in terms of things like, you know, going to the office or travelling. I mean, academics tend to do a lot of travelling. Yeah, so it's completely changed. And so we've gone from sort of, you know, um, end on trains and um, going up and down to London and, and walking to, to having uh, back-to-back Zoom meetings um, now where very, very efficient use of time um, and um, almost no time in between some of the, and I think that comes with its own challenges as well, because um, I think it, 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 you miss out on, on some of the, 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 the chats that you have walking into meetings or coming out of meetings or the moments that you have walking through the beautiful environment in Oxford to the next meeting, etc. Um, so I, th- I think everything has, has speeded up um, and I think that you know, we're, I think we're all looking forward to getting back to the sort of uh, um, it, the, the more the usual ways of working. Although I don't think it necessarily will happen. Like I think for some people, it's been a welcome change. And I've certainly, you know, in my work as a GP, I've certainly got patients who have actually been very relieved not to be doing a you know a three-hour commute every day and be able to spend time with family, which they haven't otherwise been able to to do. Um, and I, I think that that making sure that people can work effectively and comfortably um, because there's still, you know, the pandemic hasn't finished. There's, there are still concerns about you know, whether new variants might emerge, um, whether they might escape the vaccine. Um, and so I, th- I think it's it still, still a need for sort of watchful um, caution, I, th- I think. Um, I, I didn't ask you about your work. I think I sort of assumed that you, you were no longer working as a GP, but you've continued to practice. Yeah, so, so I have, um, so for various reasons, so, so, but I, yeah, I continue doing my bit. I do two sessions a week in general practice throughout the, uh, throughout the pandemic. I've, I've moved to more remote um, uh, surgeries now, so speaking more to people and for geographical reasons as much as anything. But, um, and I think that the way the health service is delivered has actually changed, not just in primary care, um, but in secondary care as well. And I think a lot of follow-up appointments for patients are now from, from the hospital system are also done um, by, by telephone. And I think um, that, you know, there's pros and cons of that. And I think we need to get the balance. Um, you know, the balance might change over time as to how that's all delivered and there's capacity issues as well making sure that there's enough workforce and so forth but um, so I think there are challenges ahead um, and, and there are you know, teams in Oxford doing work on on the value of remote consultations and how things have changed basically because of because of the pandemic and what the lessons are and for some patients I think it's 
it's more efficient for them not to have to come take an afternoon off work and sit in a GP surgery for you know, to have a 10 minute appointment um, when when what they needed was a repeat prescription, which could actually be sorted out over the telephone. Um, but 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 you know there's pros and cons of these things. I think we just need to let let the um, health service settle down and see how things work over time. And do you think? I mean, I think everybody found the constraints of the pandemic quite difficult, or most of them did. Um, do you think the fact that you were able to work on something that was actually addressing the problem uh, supported your own well-being? Well, absolutely. I mean, it's 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 really I absolutely love doing research. You know, it's it's my you know, I feel it's an enormous privilege. I I wake up every morning just really interested to find to know what the answers are to some of the questions that we're asking that day, and I just love so so, so for me actually um, having such a high concentration of research has been immense. You know, really really enjoyable. It's it's one of the things I really enjoy. I, I think um, uh, so. so uh, yeah, I, I think it's been it's been a really um, valuable sort of um, experience. But really concentrated there. I think I don't think I had um, in the first year of the pandemic. I don't think I had a clear week off in that whole first year. Um, and I think most it's only recently that I had that, uh, an auto reply on with my contact details on if people need to interrupt me while I am trying to take a little bit of annual leave. Um, so I, I think it's it's. Um, yeah, it's, been, it's, it's had its challenges, I think, in, in that uh, way. I suppose particularly if you're in a role where people are expecting you to do something which they they need you to do quickly, and you're uniquely placed to do it. Um, I think that's been one of the, one of the issues that's meant it's, you, know, you just have to keep going. Really, uh, even whilst I had COVID, I'm still sitting on co on conference calls, um, <laughs> trying to help with the next bits of the national policy and things as I could. Um, and has the experience, this is the last question, has the experience um, led you to think that there are things you'd like to see change in, in the future in the way research is conducted? I think I mean, one of the um, amazing things has been about the, the public engagement um, research. And, and when we were looking at the beginning of the vaccine work that we, we was commissioned, there was a, a survey done of patients where um, done by an organisation called HDR UK, and I think they identified like 800 re distinct research questions that patients had and wanted to know the answers to. And those, uh, and I think again, some of the questions that people have are not necessarily the ones that researchers are going and doing, and, and actually interesting. So I think the opportunity really is to is to be able to tap into this enormous wealth of. Of questions for example um you know people want to know you know if they've had covid already and then they have two vaccines is that as good as actually having had three jabs and what about if you had sort of covid uh covid vaccines and then you had covid afterwards is that as is your immunity is that stacking up as well as it would have been had you only had you had it in a different order and things like that as well and these aren't necessarily questions that would be immediately popping to the front of people's minds um but which which potentially you know, could be answered. so i think the thing i'd like to see changes to continue to change is that close sort of working relationship with patients where we can see where we can benefit from the questions that are important to patients and answer those questions in a way that benefit them as well as also um, of interest to, to researchers and uh, useful to the, to the policymakers. Yeah. Okay, that's lovely. I think that's covered everything that I had. So I've stopped recording now. Yeah. Stop.
So what kind of nice and unusual things have happened? Um, so, so I had my very first uh, trip to the House of Lords um, this last Monday as part of the All-Party Parliamentary Med- Group on Medical Research. And they invited the, sort of the key scientists really who contributed to the pandemic um, response. And so um, I went along having done the, the work really on the risk stratification and also vaccine safety. And then I was really pleased to meet up. There was a whole group of um, other Oxford researchers from people who'd uh, uh, helped make, make the vaccine, design the vaccine, test the vaccine. Um, and because we were looking at the safety of the vaccine, um, as well as people who had done the um, uh, work to, to look at the, uh, the treatments that might be used in the recovery trial. Um, and, and so met uh, again just with various people and going around and basically hearing everybody's story um, about what, what did they do sort of um, in the pandemic and how does it all, all fit together and how, how they've actually come to be sort of on that um, on, on that. Uh, that grouping um, and, and that, that was there was a bit of a call to I think to, to, to the government again within that which was to, to make sure that it recognised that you know building on the expertise um, of, of scientists in this country that has accrued over many years and, and that does require investment and does require ongoing investment and can't just be switched off off and switched on again um, in the way, if, unless that investment is there. So there was a, a sort of one of the purposes for that meeting, funding bodies were there as well. So people like the MRC and Cancer Research UK and um, the Association of Medical Charities, etc., um, to highlight the importance of, of what I think often goes on in the background, you know, the, the sort of the underpinning foundational research that is going on and will cont- always continue to go on, but just to make sure that that, it, that, that is supported and remains sort of, um, scalable so that hopefully we won't need it in quite the speed and things that we've done but we don't know about the future and there are always the, the possibilities of, of similar things happening again and we just want to be able to le- leverage that in the future yes lovely so, so, so there was a